If you have fuzzy definitions, you can't measure them. And so therefore you can't tell if you're right or not. Welcome to Branding Over Wine, an exclusive podcast by Branding Mag. I'm Martin Shearer and I'm super excited to be sharing some great conversation with some of our personal branding heroes. And with us here today, we have a lady I wanted to get on our show for quite a while. One of the leading brand thinkers of our time, author of Building Distinctive Brand Assets and co-author of How Brands Grow Too with Byron Sharp, Jenny Romaniuk. Welcome, Jenny. Before I introduce you, could you please say something about yourself to introduce yourself to the audience? Hi. Yeah. Um, thank you, Martin. Um, my name is Jenny Romanek, and I'm a research professor with the Ehrenberg Bass Institute for Marketing Science based in Australia. Um, and I've basically spent most of my life asking questions and answering questions about marketing and then sharing that with people. Super. Well, as I mentioned earlier, I'm a big fan of uh, Aaron Bark's work, uh, also Rachel's work and your work. And what I found very fascinating is how you seem to have more of a view of, of brands in a more, let's say, um, research-based setting. So really looking at the data, looking at what drives brand growth in the long run. And that is more looking at the... Uh, at, at the academic side of the work, more looking at what does the data actually tell us and go beyond correlations, which of course is really easy. I mean, if there's something consultants are good at is showing graphs of correlations and not looking at the big picture. And I think that makes researchers like you very valuable for, for us, for us marketeers, because we have a more objective view of how brands grow. Now, if I can put it out there with an easy question, so if you can give advice to, let's say, a brand builder and you have to give three or four uh, main areas of brand code, so you have to grow your brand, what are the things you put out there and say, well, this is the way you can grow your brand? Well, the evidence tells us that, um, oh, thank you for the kind words. Um, the, the evidence tells us that brands grow by expanding their customer base. So that means you have to know who could buy your brand, so who's in your category, and then work out how to get more of them. Now, that seems very simple, and, and this is part of the power of the work that we do is it's not. The thing is what we did first of all, and this goes back to Andrew Ehrenberg and his teachings, particularly on how science works, but what we did first is just, understand how brands actually grow so not hypothesizing not imagining not not dreaming up this world that could exist but actually just going out into the world and going well how did brands grow and if you're in a category um you can do that if you've got the data you can look backwards and go well this brand grew how did it actually grow did it grow by getting more customers did it grow by building up loyalty? What proportion of each? You can actually document those patterns yourself. And that's where we see that consistent pattern, that brands grow by expanding their customer base. Now, once you understand that, then that then leads to a whole heap of implications that works on. Um, for example, it tells you that you really need to understand the people who don't buy your brand currently. Because if you grow 
they're the ones who will become customers. So you will have done something that has lifted them up so that they're now buying you. So that means, you know, you if you really want to get a handle on that, you really need to understand them. So we spend a lot of time understanding the people who buy us and maybe we should spend more time thinking about the people who don't buy us or don't buy us in that time period to work out how to do that. And so so that then leads to a whole heap of implications of how you do research. And we talk about these two big levers for marketers to pull mental availability, which is about being easily thought of, and physical availability, which is about being easy to find and buy. That, that, that is so super fascinating. Now, I think many of our marketeers already know the terms of mental availability and uh, physical availability, or at least heard about that. So we'll dive into that a bit uh, deeper a little bit later on. It's good to have the context of how Aaron Bart and, and your team, which I, I believe is, let's say, yeah, probably the most famous marketing team uh, there is out there, let's say, on the, arch- um, on the academic side, with physical availability and mental availability. Now, physical availability, in my opinion, that is a little bit of a, a duh that brand marketeers sometimes forget and commercial people instinctively know better because they know that, you know, when to grow, you have to increase your distribution, increase being out there, increase where, where your audience yeah. is. Yeah, but physical availability is more than just distribution. And that's the mistake. The, I, I agree with you that often mm, it's neglected. It's not considered just part of marketing. It's like that's logistics, that's sales, it's yes, out there. But indeed. actually it should be, it's part of the growth system. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not just distribution. Just, just being there isn't enough if you're not noticed. So we talk Super. about three yeah. pillars of physical availability. Presence which is what Mm -hmm. you would equate to distribution, being where buying is happening. Prominence, which is standing out in that environment, because often in that environment you've got competitive clutter. If you don't have competitive clutter, you've got environmental or mental clutter. So you really want the brand to stand out, and that's where distinctive assets can help, visual standing out. Um, and then you want to have have the right portfolio, have something that's buyable for whatever mindset the buyer has come into that category. So if I'm coming into a category because I, um, you know, say I'm working in an organisation, I'm in a B2B company and I want to get promoted, so I want to you know, get a really smart up and coming firm that, you know, I can say we're working with this firm now and this will look really good to my bosses because that's my goal. Um, Then if you want to be someone who I hire, that's what you've got to have. Um, You've got to have something that shows that you can fulfill that for me. So, so it's not just being there, being there. We know lots of things are, are available, but we just don't notice them. Or we do notice them, but they don't have what we want at that Indeed. time. Indeed. And that's the link when you go perhaps from sales to marketing and back mm. and forth again on there. So this is, this is, I, 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 this is what I really like about Aaron Bassett. It has a uniform vision that connects both parts of the equation, more let's say the the um, uh, how it works in the brain, and how it works at just being there, 
and it's connecting yeah. so them. So I think of it as how you so mental availability is what goes on in the buyer's brain. Mm-hmm. Physical availability is what goes on in the buyer's environment and your capacity to ensure what's in that environment is the most conducive to get them to transact with you. Indeed. Now to to step back a little bit on what you mentioned earlier, but what you found fascinating is that you have to uh, what you suggested is uh, target your non-buyers. With this, you mean targeting the non-buyers within the category. This is yeah, the- absolutely. yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, if you're in a growing category, then you may want to look a little bit beyond that because you do want to make sure that if you've got people coming into the category, um, that you're reaching them because they will have very little knowledge about brands in the category. So if you can reach them then you can get a head start on everybody else. Because if you're a growing category, you need to acquire um, a certain amount of new buyers just to keep the share you've got. Otherwise, you go backward and share in a growing category. Um, But it's not actually about targeting non-buyers. It's about understanding them. And there's a difference in that because... Understanding a non-buyer means that you put yourself in the shoes of someone who knows very little about your brand, isn't looking out for it, won't naturally screen it in, um, and actually making sure that what you do is noticed by them. And that's actually hard work. If you achieve that, then you will reach your buyers because they're the easy ones. So, you know, there's an old adage that is, you know, if you have to eat two frogs, eat the biggest one first, you know, because that gets the hard task <laughs> yeah. done and then makes the second one a bit easier. Apparently, I've never eaten frogs, so I'm not 100% sure if that is the case. But, you know, it's that sort of thing is if you do the hard thing first, then it makes, in this case, the easier thing redundant because you will, we know that buyers, for example, are two to three times more likely to notice any advertising a brand does um they're just just more in tune more likely to screen in things that are going on that the brand does so you don't actually have to work that hard to get noticed by buyers I mean, you have to work because you have to get through all of the other um, attention filters but it's the non-buyers that you need to grow and when i say you need to grow what we found is that um one of our corporate sponsors actually did a test where um they're a large multinational company with lots of brands and they went and they got all. They looked at their last couple of years, got the brands that grew, and looked at how they grew. So just documented. So brand X grew. How did it grow? Penetration versus loyalty. And then they got the brand plans that the marketers mm. had put forward because they're like, well, maybe the brands that grew, everyone planned to grow um, in a certain way. So you know what they found is when brands grew. They grew more by penetration, only a little bit by loyalty, the same patterns we find. Um, So then they took to the brand plans and said, well, maybe all these marketers had planned to grow by penetration. What they found, no, actually. There were, amongst the brands that grew, there were brand plans that planned to grow by loyalty, by penetration, by a mix of both. And so what that tells us is it doesn't actually matter what you plan to do. If you grow, this is how it will happen. So some of those marketers that plan to grow by loyalty accidentally stumbled across something that got them more customers. And so they grew not because the way they had planned to grow, but just because they were lucky enough to find something that worked. 
Um, so that's why when I say you need new, new customers to grow, um, it's not a choice. It's just the way the world works. <laughs> Super. Now, to uh, perhaps it's a bit of a nuance, but I found this fascinating as well. So um, you now mentioned targeting uh, uh, consumers within a category that are not buyers of your brand yet. How does mm-hmm. it relate to targeting consumers within the categories that are light buyers of your brand? Well, both are both are the hard to get people. So when we talk about light buyers, um, it's usually in the context of packaged goods. And, and light buyers just means infrequent buyers. So they might buy you only once a year. And if you think about mm-hmm. things that you buy once a year, how easy is it not to buy it and not even know you didn't buy it? That's ah, the big terms so, of marketing. So, so, so when brands decline, they decline more in penetration than they do in loyalty. And so it's those light once-only buyers that drop, drop off, off first yes, because they're yes. not getting the reinforcement that they need to remind them, oh, yeah, I only drink a Coke once a year. You know, maybe I only have it when I'm really hungover and, um, yeah, <laughs> I just forgot. Yeah, and so Coca-Cola doesn't remind me, hey, don't forget, you buy us occasionally. Um, yeah, so that's why light buyers are important because um, they're also the ones that if you grow, they will grow and out of your customer base, you'll get the more increase in sales. Um, okay. and, and but when, of course, you does, get to durables, you don't have so much light buyers. You just have buyers and non-buyers. That's one of the things that I also wanted to uh, to address. Uh, indeed, durables have light, uh, let's say, uh, let's say buyers and non-buyers. But still, mm-hmm. if you're a larger durable brand, you often have more than one line of products. Yep. So you could work on that, you could say. Uh, uh, and perhaps that's why it's so important for durables to... Uh, actually for everybody, but perhaps for durables, it's more visible to increase the range because then you can make better use of your branding power. Because if a person only... To to Mm -hmm. a certain extent, yeah, we find cross-selling isn't a path to growth. It's not. So that's the limitation. No, no, whenever we've seen... Oh, that's fascinating. We've looked at this decade. So we've looked at this in a whole range of like banking, insurance, things like that. Um, Again, those brands, they... Grow, they vary much more in the number of customers they have than the product range of those customers. Um, yeah, so so loyalty in terms of cross-selling isn't a path to growth. Now, what means, but that doesn't mean you don't have a product portfolio because what happens when you've got a product portfolio is you have more opportunities for everybody, not just your buyers, but your non-buyers. So if you're an insurance company and you don't offer pet insurance, Think about something that's grown a lot during the pandemic. Lots of people in lots of countries have increased their pets at home. So if you don't have a pet insurance product, um, no one can buy pet insurance from you. If you have a pet insurance product, yes, your existing customers can also buy pet insurance from you, but so can people who don't buy you as well. So you would promote pet insurance as just another product. You wouldn't worry about cross-selling but knowing you will get some people who have your other products who also have pet insurance. So cross-selling is not a path to growth, but having a good product range is. Of course. I mean, that's 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 uh, where it all starts. That is the thing. Uh, but you can say that uh, you still leverage your brand. For instance, if you are a very strong 
uh, Durables brand, uh, you can use your brand to sell similar products within the range. What do you mean by well, a strong durable brand? Uh, let, let, let's take a, a brand like Siemens or Bosch. No, and no, I'm, and I think not so much what a brand, but what do you define as strong? How do you know if a brand is strong? I mean, I can talk about big brands and small brands, so brands that have lots of customers and brands that don't have many, but I don't understand what a strong brand is. Yes, I guess that will um, uh, just totally uh, uh, suck up all the time in our uh, conversations. <laughs> I'll try to keep it very simple. Uh, what I would see as a strong brand is a brand that within its category entices people to think of that brand before other products in that brand. And it also has some pricing power. The, I think that is perhaps a, um, a more simpler way of saying what a strong brand is. That is when a brand connects to the aspects of the product that the product should resolve in the lives of the consumers. I would call that a strong brand and that, that if that helps. I'm not sure it's the best definition and I'm sure that everybody has a separate definition of this. So I'm... I'm, I'm the, <laughs> and that's the problem. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that's that's where, when, when we have um, sort of fuzzy concepts in marketing that everyone mm -hmm. has a different definition of what it is, it actually doesn't help us. It actually sets us back. That's why, I, I mean, I, I talk about big brands and small brands. And I yeah. can talk about brands having certain characteristics in certain metrics and what. And by big brands, I mean big in share, stroke, number of customers, because those two things are related. So, yeah, so it is. And I mean, this is part of the problem of whenever I ask people that sort of question, because the sort of thing is, yeah, it's hard to articulate because it's not very well defined. And I think it would be really good for everybody if we had really strong definitions of these things that we could all agree on. Um, it yeah, makes life so much uh, easier. As a small intermezzo, that brings a more of a philosophical discussion into this because it's more of, let's say, a, a, Plat a Platonian Socratian discussion, if you want to call it that way, that you can know what it is without actually mm -hmm. defining it properly. So, for instance, just as you could, uh, mm -hmm. as Plato or uh, as Socrates mentioned, you have a table. Everybody would have a different, different definition of a table, but if you say the word table, everybody has more or less the image in there. This is how I yeah. see it in grants. Yeah, but with a table, um, you have characteristics that make so, that are prototypical of a exactly. table. Yes. That and, they, and so there are actually about. there's a way to measure if yes, something is a table is. or not. Yeah. Um, and that's yeah. where it comes down to is if you have fuzzy definitions, you can't measure them. And so, therefore, you can't tell if you're right or not. So I'm an empirical scientist. I like to boil things down from how can I test if I'm right or not, knowing that I'm not going to be right all the time because no one is, but I can't know if I'm right or not unless I can empirically test it. And to test something, it needs to be able to be operationalised, and that means it does need to be made concrete. It doesn't have to be universal. You can have multiple measures I for the same concept, but you actually have to have at least one measure. Otherwise, what happens is you're never wrong, but you're never right either. And that's that's why I always like to prod people when they use terms that I don't really understand what it is, because I think it's just really important that we all have a language as a discipline that makes sense to us as much as possible. And we don't use um 
yeah, we, we, we don't use, I think the term for it is called weasel words, words that could mean <laughs> lots of different things to yes, people. Yes, yes, so it words. allows us to kind of yeah. weasel out of having to commit to, oh, I definitely mean this. Because if you come back and you go, oh, I tested this and it didn't work, I can go, oh, you measured it wrong. No, no, that's not what I meant. Um, so, yeah, yes, I didn't want to yeah. get too much so, off track, but I think it's just yeah, important. So, so, so um, um, I totally agree that um, different people, different academics, different uh, marketers can have different definitions of brands, but we should at least define what we mean. And then, yeah. then we can say, okay, your definition is slightly different on these metrics or on these characteristics. Mm -hmm. And this is what I mean with a brand. And this is what a brand, let's say a strong brand. This is what you mean with a strong yeah. brand. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. And then we can at least uh, have a discussion where we agree and have a discussion where we don't agree. We can test it. So, we can actually get yeah. evidence and know what is right. And that's the thing that the more we treat marketing like a science where we can develop testable hypotheses and work out if they're working or not, the stronger we are as a discipline, the more credible we are as a discipline. And that's, totally you know, that's part of what we push for is to get that credibility and particularly in the area of branding, you know, where we have so many things that um, are made up. Fluffy. And I don't mind that because I think, you know, coming up with new ideas and things is great. It's part of, you know, the innovation and understanding. But we need to be clear on the measurement and the articulate how we can actually yeah. test those ideas. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah if we yeah, can't yeah. do that, then I find the ideas useless. If you can't give me something that I can test, yeah, no point <laughs> worrying about it. Yeah. <laughs> Story. Uh, spoken as a true uh, empirical academic. Indeed. That is that. So uh, just to get back to an earlier thing, which I also found yep. fascinating, is that uh, when consumers are in front of the shelves, you they, they should see, like, um, have as many uh, hooks to different ways they can use a product or have a buying moment, and that will increase sales. Now, I believe in, um, in your writings, you call those uh, category entry points, which I find incredibly mm -hmm. fascinating uh, over-encompassing uh, theme that you can use to tie in the different ideas of uh, the role the brand plays in a person's life, the occasion the brand brand has, if in some brands occasions play around, sometimes not, uh, how people use it, the image a brand has, and does it give image to the consumer. So all these reasons why a consumer should buy a brand, you seem to have tied in into one over-encompassing uh, theme called category entry points. Can you mention something about that? Yeah. So, so category entry points are, well, category entry points are what are commonly referred to as brand attributes, but not all brand attributes are category entry points. So category entry points are a subset of attributes that people use, and you're right, they tie together the consumer's lives with the category because they represent that transition point when someone goes from being a category buyer uh, from being a person to being a category buyer and therefore a potential brand buyer. Okay, mm -hmm. so uh, I'm walking, going through my life. I don't have anything in day. And then um, tomorrow night I am going out to dinner with my niece. So I'm now thinking of restaurants where I can catch up with my niece. And as part of that, my brain is narrowing that down to foods we both like, somewhere where we can talk because I haven't seen her for a while, so I want somewhere that's a nice atmosphere where we can talk. And we both don't drive, so I need somewhere that's easily accessible that we can you know, get Ubers as we need to go. 
So all of that is shaping the restaurants that I'm considering for dinner tomorrow night. Now, I might have another dinner on the weekend with friends and I will have a totally different set of category entry points for that occasion because it's different people, different time, different day, all these different things that will feed into it. So category entry points are essentially the internal and external factors that shape the brands that are retrieved and then thought of in buying situations. So that makes them basically the underpinning of mental availability. You, you, uh, these are all very rational, let's say, underpinnings of a category entry points. Can no, category entry points be... be... Exactly. That's exactly the question. Can category so, entry points... So I talk be... about the seven Ws. So yes. the seven Ws of the framework. So there is... Some of them are very rational because people are rational. Yeah, where the location you are can influence what it is. Uh, when the timing of the, the timing can influence it. So that can be time of day, time of week, time of year. It can be how long you need something to take, if you need something quickly or if you can take a long time. Um, with whom or for whom, that reflects the influence of other people. So that can be who you're with. So in this case, I was talking about being with my niece. But if I'm buying a gift for someone, I might have that in mind. Or if I'm going somewhere and I'm meeting people, I might think of, you know, those people will influence. So if I've got friends who are, say, great wine buffs, I might think of places that have really good wine lists because I've got them in mind when I'm choosing it. Um, how feeling, which is... Um, those emotions that you can have either before you enter into a category, so things that you might want to address by category consumption, emotions that are generated during the category, so how you feel during that, and then afterwards, how you might want to feel afterwards. So your emotions can actually be in any of those three dimensions depending on the category. So, for example, you know, if I've been running and I've got a sore knee, then I'm thinking of things that will stop my knee from hurting because I don't want to feel pain at the end of it. But if after this podcast, I go, yay, that went well. And so I decide <laughs> I want to have a celebratory drink. I will think of something different and that will be capturing the emotion at that point in time. Um, and then we have while, which is activities you're doing at the same time before or after that can influence um, and with what, which is co-consumed categories, things you things you also might engage with at the same time, and why, which is the internal motivations. So category entry points can come from a really Across wide range, range. range. Yeah. areas. Yeah, that's yeah, yeah. the thing of, so when you talked about bringing together, I mean, most people when they interact with category entry points for the first time, the full set, recognise at least some of them from needs, you know, usage and attitude studies, need-based segmentation. We've had these things yeah. fragmented throughout our, if they've done anthropological work, they come up there. Um, this is about bringing them all together to recognise that one person can have multiple, can engage with a category for many different category entry points, just as much as there can be diversity across people with category entry points. And um so let's say this category enterprises uh, unites all the different reasons that a brand can be linked 
to buy. If I can, I can I translate it in that way. That I would is... put it more of the, these are the re, these are the thoughts that people have. I don't like to use the word reasons because I think that leads people to think more rational, and they yes, are not yes, all yes, rational. Yes, they're all, they're, they're really quick thoughts yeah. that people have. Um, so they're they're the thoughts that people have that they use to basically draw out from their brain a, an efficient subset of brands that yeah. are going to be most useful in that moment. And you want your brand to be one of that set because if it's not one of that set, your chance of being bought goes down dramatically because it has to be that none of that set will do the job and the person will take the extra energy to go and find out more options. So yeah, yeah, by yeah, being yeah, yeah. one of that set, you've just increased massively your brand's chance of getting bored. So it's that's a um, a whole set of emotional, rational, uh, conscious, half-conscious, subconscious thoughts um, that link for a reason why people should buy you. But then why already suggested two rational structures, let's say everything yeah, that links... Right. Yeah. 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 I think I think you're trying to put too many words around it. Just these are yeah. the things that people use to generate options to buy. Just keep yeah. it simple. So we're talking about category entry points. I find that as mentioned, a fascinating concept in which uh, uh, you and uh, your other colleagues at Ehrenberg Bass have tied them together into an, an over-encompassing concept that uh, that we can use. Now it also implies what you mentioned earlier that the um, there are different groups of buyers that will look like at different sets of category entry points did, did, does that work in that way Is, did i interpret that correctly uh, not necessarily i mean yes i mean no one uses it's not that everybody uses every category entry points mm -hmm. um but what we know is that um there's much more heterogeneity there's as much heterogeneity within a buyer than across as across buyers. So one oh, person doesn't come into a category with one category entry point. So, yeah. for example, you know, I drink coffee, um, but I will drink coffee because I just like warm drink on a cold day. Sometimes I want something to wake me up. Sometimes I'm just catching up with a friend and I just want something to drink at the time. Um, sometimes I've got a bit of a headache and so I think, oh, maybe a coffee will help. You know, all these different category entry points can get me into the coffee category. Now, as I said that, probably you, your listeners would go, yep, I use that. Yep, I do that. I drink coffee for that. And then go, no, 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 I, I don't get headaches or, you know, I don't drink coffee when I'm out or, you know, all of those things. So there'll be some you identify with and some that you don't. Um, and that's why we can have common category entry points across category buyers, but we need to be careful not to try to do the old school of trying to segment buyers by category entry points because that's not reflective of buyer behaviour. And how does it work with, let's say, uh, subcategories? For instance, um, I know for a fact that a Jack Daniels drinker, a whiskey drinker, um, drinks Jack Daniels same moments as a Scotch drinker, but they're also different moments, and they're also different type of, uh, let's say, um, 
uh, consumes to a certain extent. For instance, Jack Daniels is much more drinking, mm-hmm. let's say, in 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 a, in a in a party setting, in you know when you go out, while uh, Scotch is much more drinking drinking also in a party setting, but less, and mm-hmm. is drank it more at home, more let's say in uh, with a smaller group of friends. So that so would suggest that uh, this is indeed uh, true what you say. But then really related to how you define the category. Are we talking about categories? Are we talking about subcategories? So I think the definition of category is important here as well. Well, I th- yeah, but I think you've got to be careful not to confuse the brand with the person. So you talked about a Jack Daniels buyer. So there are people who buy Jack Daniels. Yes. But Jack Daniels doesn't own them. No, they don't. They don't buy don't. other brands no. as well. And so when they're out partying, yeah, they'll drink Jack Daniels, yeah. but they're probably totally drinking agree. Canadian yeah. Club, probably having yeah. a Johnny Walker or two. They just yeah. like scotch and they drink yeah. it and, you know, like a scotch yeah. and dry and they'll go through a repertoire. Yeah. So, so Andrew Ehrenberg put it well when he said, um, your customers are really other people's customers who buy you occasionally. Totally agree. Exactly. Exactly. The so, reason I mentioned that is <clears throat> to highlight the difference between the two, for sure. The Jack Daniels has a separate repertoire, uh, um, a Scotch Glenfiddich to be exact, uh, has a separate repertoire, and to a certain extent they're overlapping. And for some, mm-hmm. for some uh, uh, brands, or uh, let's put it more correctly, subcategories this overlap is bigger than in others. Possibly, but again, it depends on how you determine a subcategory. So exactly. usually we define yeah. subcategory based on functional differences. So, for example, um, if we're taking you know, alcoholic beverages, mm-hmm. the subcategory of um, hard seltzer is one yes. that has recently emerged. Okay, yeah. and that's defined. So there are characteristics that make a product a hard seltzer. So a subcategory is a product-based definition. Now, hard seltzers can have category entry points that overlap with beer, with cider, with wine, because, you know, if, say, take something like at the beach, someone might have a seltzer at a beach, someone else might have a beer at the beach, someone else might have a nice bubbly wine at the beach. Yeah, so all of those things. So, th- so that's where we have to be careful to not to confuse. So the category entry points can go across subcategories, um, yes, just is. as much yeah. as they can go across brands. But there'll be different proportions of them. So you, you know, your example of whiskey um, is one whereby you go, okay. So when people go clubbing, for example, maybe whiskey isn't high on the list of drinks that they would drink while they were clubbing. It's more, you know, more likely to be that more quiet social circumstance. But that doesn't negate the fact that I'm sure there are lots of people who go clubbing who drink whiskey, um, but they probably drink a whole heap of other stuff as well. So the situations where people consume different brands mm. and different subcategories are very different from the definition of what makes a subcategory. So clubbing is a category entry point because it's a location where you're consuming alcohol. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hard seltzer or whiskey is a product category stroke subcategory of the bigger alcoholic beverage category, which is a subcategory of the bigger beverage category, which if you really want to get <laughs> meta about it, um, is a subcategory of the bigger things we put into our body to 
give us nutrients category. So, you know, so you can layer it up, you can layer it down and, you know, in between. So if you're taking something like whiskey, you can divide it into, you know, basically provenance. You could, you know, is it an American whiskey or an Irish whiskey or a Scottish whiskey? You know, all of those things can narrow down, but they're all product features that deal with that. Um, but that's different from category entry points, which are about, the thoughts that people have and related to their lives, they're not related to the product. Interesting. Now, uh, we talked about how brands grow. This is, of course, easier because of, let's say, uh, for larger brands, because they have, uh, let's say, they can reach more people. And as you rightly mentioned, they often also are used more often. So this is that, uh, uh, I believe you call it uh, double, je double jeopardy. But how, as a small brand, do you grow? How do you break into that? How do you compensate for that? With great difficulty. That's the challenge. It's not easy. But, I mean, I, I will say that, yes, big brands have a lot of natural advantages, but they also often squander them as well. Um, I do a lot of work measuring distinctive assets. And, you know, big brands often have, um, you know, a ton of people with their finger in the pie, which leads to inconsistency, leads to, uh, and that's the enemy of building strong distinctive assets where you can have a, a smaller brand that has a really focused team that can build up a strong distinctive asset just mm. by virtue of good execution, good consistency, and, and you know, doing it well. So oh, that is yeah, fascinating. So, yeah, yeah. So if, if I interpret correctly, Small brands, apart from having the large disadvantage of being a small brands, could have an advantage of being really having a good team that really builds good distinctive assets. Yeah, do do good marketing. Um, so yeah. so I don't think it's totally. Um, we do see small brands that grow, and we do see big brands that decline. It just doesn't happen overnight. Um, it's not like next year the top. You know, brands in any category will just suddenly reverse and be the bottom. Yeah, we don't see that. Um, I think there was a recent report out by Cantar, uh, 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 Byron, our director, summed it up and said, basically, if you're in packaged goods and you grew one percentage point in penetration, you had a very good year. Yes. So, <laughs> and that's, you know, that's, that's the reality of it, that it's, it's yeah. tough to grow. And when you're a small brand, you don't have the same resources as a big brand, which means you've really got to do it well and you've got to not minimize, not, not waste as much as possible. So that's where getting very smart in how you're doing your work, um, doing your marketing is, is really important, not wasting your media dollars, not, not wasting your anything you put out there, making sure it's all really well branded taking advantage of every opportunity that you can. You know, it's it's hard work, but you can do it because we do see small brands that grow and they become big brands. You mentioned in this process that uh, to, to build distinctive assets. Uh, can you explain a bit more to uh, to us what, what you mean with distinctive assets? It's a term that is used, starting to get used a lot, but I'm not sure if we all understand it properly. Yep, no, happy to, happy to define. So distinctive assets are essentially, we define it as anything that's not the brand name, but that you want to trigger the brand name in category by a memory. So it's anything sensory, but typically in marketing, we work predominantly with visual or audio assets. 
But you can have distinctive assets that are about taste, about touch, how something feels, or about smell. Mm. It's just they're not as easy to manipulate because they require the buyer and the brand to be co-located in order for that to happen. You can't touch something if it's not physically there. You can't smell something in, unless you're in the environment. So, you know, so those sorts of um, assets, uh, asset types are less, less flexible. Um, but, yeah, um, so the brand name is essentially the, the biggest distinctive asset you have. That's your name. But you can have other things that are proxies for the brand whereby when you when the buyer experiences them, they don't even have to think about it. The brand just comes into their mind. And so that's how you know something is really strong. And we measure it based on, so if you ask me, how do I define a strong distinctive asset? Going back to our early discussion. <laughs> that's based on two metrics, fame and uniqueness. So okay. uniqueness is the degree to which a brand owns the distinctive asset. That it's the only brand that buyers think of when they're exposed to that asset without the brand. Mm. And fame is how widespread that ownership is, how many category buyers do that. And you have a strong distinctive asset when you have close to or ideally around 100% fame, 100% uniqueness. Because what that means is that every category buyer, when they see that asset, thinks of your brand and only your brand. So that suggests that um, uh, positioning, but with a slightly different definition, somehow also plays a role because uh, you have to uh, focus on the uniqueness of your distinctive assets. Yeah, but it's not positioning in the brand attributes. In, so in the traditional sense of words. I know, like I know, I know. If other brands use the color red... There's no point in choosing red because red. you'll never own yeah. that because other brands yeah. use it. If you were going to launch yeah. a you know, fast food place tomorrow, I'd suggest, you know, don't use a yellow M because that's no. going to be confusing. So, yeah. so you need this in the sense that you can own it, um, yeah. time, which is different from the USP positioning sense, which is about owning an attribute. That doesn't make yeah, sense. Yeah, I, I know. I'm, I'm trying to unite it, and I know there's always this discussion between. Yeah. So separate. Uh, that, yeah. They're, yeah. they're better off kept separate because they yeah. have very different roles. So the, the, the purpose of distinctive assets is to brand, to act as branding devices and to trigger the brand. So that's all they do. That's all they need to do. They don't need to do anything else. That in itself is a valuable action. So, Super. yeah, you want to keep them at that and just doing that job well. Do one job well rather than multiple jobs medio mediocrity. <laughs> uh, uh, well, that's something that I can still learn after 30 years of, uh, of work. Uh, how do you grow new brands? Well, first principle is start as you mean to go on. Um, don't, you know, think, oh, I'll fix that later. Start with the right brand identity that everyone who gets exposed to your brand learns the brand off start. So do your research beforehand. Make sure yeah. your colours, your pack shape, your thing, all are things that you would be proud to call distinctive assets five, and, ten years and this is so important to say this because the uh, with many entrepreneurs the, there is this uh, let uh, uh, we'll fix it as we go along 
We'll yeah. cross the bridge when we find it. We'll build the airplane as we go down. Uh, you know, all the all the platitudes uh, that they mm -hmm. use when uh, the building company. And what you're actually suggesting is uh, no, really try to get the uh, the branding right straight from the beginning. And, yeah, and uh, it's believe... easy enough to do. It's, yeah. it's actually quite easy to do. All you do is you look at the category that you're entering and go, don't want to do what they're doing. Counter-program against it so that you can have something that you can you know, achieve 100% uniqueness as well as 100% fame. So you know, there's actually no real excuse. I mean, when you're launching a brand, and particularly if you're launching a new product, yeah, there'll be lots of things you'll want to fix. That's fine. You can't anticipate everything. Actually, when it comes to your brand identity, that's easy to do. It's easy to go, okay, I know I need something that's going to look not like everybody else so that they will easily find me. And that way, right from the start, you're building up the right mental structures from anyone who comes in contact. And then you can just keep building and capitalising on it rather than having to reinvent it um, you know, halfway down when you realise, oh, we made it all blue and we're never going to own blue, so now we have to change it to a different colour. <laughs> so, you know, so all of that. Those are mistakes that are actually really easy to anticipate and avoid. So that's why I really encourage um, the first thing. And the second thing is remember that there's a pattern to how new brands acquire customers. First of all, the first customers you get will be heavy category buyers. And the reason okay. for that simply is, well, there's two reasons for that. The first is they're more likely to be buying from the category when you launch because mm -hmm. they buy from the category a lot. The second is the more you buy from a category, the more brands you buy from. And so, therefore, they've got more room in their repertoire. Okay, so they, they buy naturally from more brands. So you're easier to slip another one in. But... These people are only your temporary. They, these are not the path to sustained growth. You will not grow unless you can also attract the medium and the light category buyers as well. So your job is to grab the early, the low-hanging fruit, which are your heavy buyers, but make sure your marketing is geared to the long-term sustainability, and that is the medium and light buyers who will come in in the subsequent months after launch. Super. Last question. Consistency. This is always a big, big theme for brand builders. Do new brands have to be more consistent than already existing brands or that really doesn't matter? Depends what you mean by consistency. I think this is poorly understood. So there's two types it of is. consistency. There's consistency in form and consistency in use. So consistency in form is things that look sound the same okay so when you're building up memories and refreshing memories it has to be it's sufficiently similar similar that your brain knows oh that's the same thing that's where it goes it's not something new it's the same thing i recognize but that doesn't mean you need consistency in use so you don't always have to have the logo in the bottom right-hand corner or, you know, the something thing. You don't have to have consistency in how something's used because that's that's about making sure you've got variety in that. So, so all brands, whether new, existing, 
big, small, need consistency in form when they're building up memories and refreshing memories. But once you've got something strong, then you can have fun in, in terms of use because you're about then drawing attention to it and making sure that people don't forget it rather than building. So it depends on what stage you're at, but as a always need consistency in form. The consistency in use is something you get to leave, to, you don't need, and in fact can be anti keeping an asset fresh if you try to be too restrictive on how it can be used. And that's after the memory structures are built. Then you can play around more with them. Then you, you can play around. You have to yes. do the work before you do the Chris, play. Yeah. And that's why so, marketers like to rush to the play part first. But no, <laughs> you've actually got to put the hard yards in and do the work first to build the asset. Then you can play with it. I think that's a very good way to, uh, to close. So first we build the assets. And then we can play with them. And yes. that's also, let's say, an important part of, of how new brands work versus, uh, versus let's say, uh, established brands. Uh, Jenny, thank you for the incredibly interesting show. I learned a lot myself, and I'm sure that the listeners did too. And I'm sure that we'll speak to each other in, uh, uh, in the future again. Great. Thank you. It was a lovely conversation. And yeah, any of you listeners, do feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. So always there. Cheers. Super. And a big thank you, Jenny, for joining us today and sharing your valuable insight theories and research. Found our discussion fascinating indeed, especially your vision and research on how brands grow and category entry points. I hope, dear listeners, that you found these insights inspiring as well. And if so, please share our Branding Over Wine podcast with friends and colleagues. And when you have a moment, We'd love to get your reviews or ratings. Hope to have you all listening on our next podcast. And thank you all for tuning in.